Welcome to another podcast from the Royal College of Psychiatrists. My name is Raj Pasord and I'm a consultant psychiatrist based at the Betham Royal and Maudsley Hospitals in South London. Joining me today is Miles Rinaldi. He is a vocational services manager based at the South London and St George's Mental Health Trust. Um, and he's published with a co-author, uh, Rachel Perkins, a very interesting paper in the July edition of Psychiatric Bulletin, uh, the entitled of which is Implementing Evidence-Based Supported Employment. So, Miles, this is a study looking at a particular approach to getting people with serious mental illness back to work. But first of all, why is this issue of employment important when we're talking about people with serious mental illness? Why is this something that people are so concerned about these days? The, the issue of employment has, I think, been around for many years with kind of lots of people with mental health problems talking to doctors about wanting to return back to work. I think kind of irrespective of who carries out the research, whether it's user groups, academics or government, we kind of find that around 70% of people who use mental health services actually have a desire or a motivation to return back to work. That motivation may not be straight away as in next week or in three months' time, but people are often seeing returning to work as kind of the central yardstick to their recovery. So it's very much part of kind of adult working life um, that people want to return back to work. Despite the fact that people with serious mental illness say they want to return to work, I think traditionally there have been very low rates of employment, isn't that right? Absolutely. I mean, historically we find very, very low rates. Um, In a study which we published several years ago in the Psychiatric Bulletin, we found an employment rate in one of our London boroughs for people who'd been using our community teams for a year or more, um, an 8% employment rate. And I think what we find when you look at things like the Labour Force survey, that the employment rate for people with more serious mental health problems is around kind of 11 12% and has been for many years. I think one of the things that comes out very clearly in all the research evidence is it's not necessarily about client characteristics that are important as to whether somebody can go back to work, but actually the types of support. What the evidence shows are things like diagnosis, level of symptoms, the level of the person's disability, the level of social skills, don't actually predict whether somebody can go back to work. Motivation and self-efficacy, and having had a work history at some time, seem to be the robust indicators that come out. So the question is more about what types of support people are provided with. Um, Traditionally in the UK, we've had, I I suppose you could say, there are three types of um, support services. You've had sheltered workshops, um, which have kind of aimed to enable people to gain skills in a kind of simulated environment um, with the view to be able to go back to work. But actually the research shows that they have very, very low rates of re-entry into ordinary competitive employment. We've then had um, pre-vocational training, which is skills training, both personal development training, things like stress management, confidence building, but also training schemes to enable people to learn how to use computers, and gain basic administration skills, catering skills, again in a simulated environment for people with mental health problems. And the evidence shows again that actually very few people make that transition from that environment to the workplace. The approach that we've um, implemented at South West and St George's is kind of what has been recommended in the Cochrane Review around um, vocational rehabilitation for people with severe mental health problems, which is the evidence-based practice called individual placement and support. And this approach, which has been tested under kind of numerous randomised controlled trials in America, Canada, and one is just reporting in England at the moment very positively, shows that actually using this approach enables a greater proportion of people with severe mental health problems to return back to work. So it's based on what the evidence base was saying is why we moved forward in trying to implement this approach for the users of our service. 
Now, I, I could have got this wrong, but my understanding of uh, individual placement and support is about the idea that you have someone working in the community mental health team who is specifically focused on getting people back to work. So if that's the case, what does that person actually do? You're absolutely right. One of, one of, kind of the underpinning principles of this practice is that you integrate an, an employment specialist into the community mental health team or any of the clinical teams. In practice, and the employment specialists, then they don't tend to be health or social care professionals. They're people who've got a background in working in education, other forms of vocational rehabilitation, human resources, but they bring kind of their knowledge and skills around labour markets and helping people back to work to the team. Um, in essence, what are they doing? They're, they're actually carrying out all stages of this, um, the job search process. They engage clients vocationally, they assess them in terms of what their needs are, they then help clients to kind of identify what types of jobs they'll be looking for, they go out, they develop job opportunities or college opportunities for people, and then help people to manage the transition from looking for work to actually starting work, which will be a lot of things like interview practice, um, helping people to actually manage interviews on the day, and then as somebody settles into a job, again, providing ongoing support to enable the person's needs to be um, catered for, to look at any kind of adjustments that might need to be made in the workplace and look at how to implement them. So they do the whole process from start to finish. Now, I'm probably going to sound like a really out-of-touch, uh, an old-fashioned consultant psychiatrist here, but what you just described sounds a lot to me, uh, uh, old fuddy-duddy that I am, like what an old-fashioned occupational therapist used to do. What went wrong with that? We've worked with our occupational therapists who have actually played a central role, certainly in the kind of the assessment process and doing a lot of the kind of preparing people to move towards employment. I think over the years what seems to have happened is um, with the advent of community teams and case management that more and more professionals are not working to their professional skills but are working in a generic sense and so a lot of our care a lot of our occupational therapists are care coordinating. So we were able to kind of create um, designated time within the week for occupational therapists to do some of this work. But actually, when you're helping someone to, to return back to work, it's actually quite time intensive. There's a lot of preparation. There's a lot of working with external agencies like Job Centre Plus, connection services for younger people, the colleges. And to do all that work and carry caseload, actually, the evidence shows it's just not possible you, you just don't kind of achieve the same types of results. So let's talk about the study now. Um, this was a, what some people describe as a naturalistic study, where you were looking at the introduction of this particular approach to getting people back to work and seeing whether it had an impact. Absolutely. Um, it was a naturalistic study. Um, we were kind of it was quite fortuitous that we had three London boroughs to look at, the Trust covers five. We looked at three boroughs, one borough and the Royal Borough of Kingston, where we implemented this approach earlier on than we were able to in the London Borough of Merton. So we were able to kind of look at the before and after picture, but also kind of to see did it did the kind of delayed time difference between implementing have any have the same effect in, in each borough. We were also able to look at a third borough, um, the London Borough of Sutton, who didn't implement this approach. And so we were able to kind of compare the kind of outcomes achieved through just the usual traditional vocational services that were available in that borough against the two boroughs where we were able to implement the um, evidence-based practice. And what were your findings? And the findings were that actually through the process of implementing um, the IPS approach, um, there's a huge increase in the numbers of people who are being able to be supported back into work, into mainstream education, and into voluntary work. 
one of the kind of findings that we were quite pleased with is that by integrating an employment specialist into the team as an equal member of the team, obviously they attend all the team meetings, like allocation meetings, etc. What was quite apparent was we weren't only just helping people to return back to work who were currently unemployed, but people who were coming into contact with the teams for the first time who already had a job but maybe had been signed off sick um, through a Med3 um, sickness certificate form. We were able to provide support to them to be able to make a, um, the transition back to work and with it being coordinated with the whole team. Could you say a bit more, though, about the actual impact in terms of the numbers uh, that you found in terms of the actual effect this, this new programme had? Um, we, we found that at, at the beginning, um, around 18% of people were in employment. Um, at, at six months, the employment specialists were supporting 38% of people back into work. Um, by 12 months, 39%. We, looked at, we also kind of looked at um, things like main, uh, mainstream education and training and found kind of similar effects, nearly doubling in size of the numbers of people being supported. And the same with voluntary work. So this was quite a big effect, wasn't it? You doubled the amount of people returning to work or returning to some kind of educational programme. Absolutely, yes. What do you think is the secret of the success of this kind of programme? Why does this work? I think it, one of the reasons why it works actually comes down to the integration of the employment specialist in, inside the community mental health team. It allows for a kind of sharing of information, much better communication between clinicians and the employment specialist. The client themselves has a very clear picture of what they're trying to do and also knows that the clinicians in the team are also supporting them in that transition back to work. And if you think logically about it, somebody returning back to work, yes, there are the kind of practicalities around the steps that they need to take, etc. But there'll always be kind of pharmacological issues that need to be addressed, maybe psychological issues, other occupational issues or other social issues that need to be addressed to be able to enable the person to make that transition back to work. So I think it is around having that kind of coordinated package within a team which enables a lot of the success. However, there's still a substantial proportion of people this system isn't helping. I mean, you're still it's still the majority of people in a way that aren't returning to work despite the implementation of this. Do you think that you can get even more people back to work? Or do you think there's a hard core group where actually you're not going to have any impact at all? I think one of the interesting things about this study is we found that people who've been in contact with the teams for less than a year or who were on a standard CPA made the transition back to work or education much, much quicker. For people who'd been in contact for over a year and were enhanced CPA so that they had kind of more complex health social care needs, it took longer and it took up to the 12-month mark for people to make that transition back. They were kind of, I suppose, would be seen as being further away from the labour force or from education. If we were to kind of follow up this study probably for an 18-month period, I think we'd find that actually even more people made that transition back. However, you're absolutely right. A lot of the research trials, and, and this one as well, shows that whilst people appear motivated to return back to work, there's a proportion who don't make that transition. And I think there is something to kind of look at in relation to kind of people's motivation. What's getting in their way? If people are saying, yes, I'd like to return back to work, what are the buts? Where's that conflict? What's stopping them? We know that there are lots of kind of structural problems, things like the welfare benefit system, which is changing, but that can be a huge disincentive for people. We know there's a huge stigma and discrimination out there in relation to employers. And again, we know survey after survey shows that employers would rather recruit somebody with a criminal record or somebody from another disadvantaged group than employ somebody with a mental health problem. People are often kind of anxious about the kind of fluctuating condition 
knowing that maybe for two months, maybe three months a year, they may need to have time off from work and kind of thinking that's actually very difficult to talk to an employer about, or they may not see it as being reasonable for an employer to say, yes, that's fine. I know that in spring and in summer, you may need to have some time off and we'll be okay with that. People kind of feel quite concerned about that. I think the final barrier that people often um, talk about actually come down to the low um, expectations of healthcare professionals. And certainly that came out when we've been talking to our teams in relation to this study, that there's a lot of um, care coordinators who just didn't believe that people with severe mental health problems could return back to work. And it's only through kind of very clear data collection and reflecting that back to the teams that they've been able to see with their own eyes people have been able to make that transition back to work and often been quite surprised in the sense of never thinking that you know Fred would be able to go back to work and then all of a sudden they find Fred is at work and it's, it's quite troublesome because he can't come and see them now for their appointments they have to see them after traditional working hours etc so I think there's a huge amount of work but I think some of it is kind of part of the evolution that as, as clinicians see more and more people returning back to work they'll see it as more realistic for a lot of their clients and I think what we've been trying to move to in the organisation is a position where employment and other social issues are kind of seen as kind of the whole package of care so we're treating the whole person not just treating their symptoms etc. What's the next stage now? Are you um, doing more research projects linked to this work? We are, we've kind of continuing to implement um, this evidence-based practice within our community mental health teams and other boroughs. We've also been very successful in um, implementing this approach within the first onset psychosis team. Um, we published a paper, a brief paper in the Psychiatric Bulletin a couple of years ago with initial results and we're just ready to submit now a further paper um, showing a kind of 24 months follow-up of young people with first episode psychosis. We know from our own trust that this works within assertive outreach teams and we're just in the process of kind of working with partners to implement um, employment specialists into primary care to kind of work alongside people who are not using secondary mental health services but have common mental health problems who are wanting to return back to work. On a side note we've also um, had an employment specialist working within a community drug team and again have found very interesting results, slightly different results, um, certainly with kind of people with addiction problems, not feeling ready to make the jump back to work, but wanting to gain skills and finish off education, and so going through education first and then returning back to work. People with serious mental illness often um, appear reluctant to engage with, with the notion of returning to work because they feel or anticipate discrimination from employers, and so that kind of puts them off. It is one of the ways that this system's working that, that someone helps, as it were, um, challenge that idea and and helps motivate people who might be suffering from what sometimes referred to as kind of learned helplessness or learned hopelessness. It, it, it can be. I think what, what's interesting about this approach is it's a very individualised approach. There's no group work. It's not a matter of pulling a group of people together to start a course looking at returning back to work. It's totally individualised. And that carries through to working with employers. There's the traditional approach to helping people with mental health problems and other disabled people is for organisations to go out and almost recruit employers who be willing to employ that disabled person or people with mental health problems. We know that's problematic and can also end up with kind of fairly low-level jobs, um, shelf stacking or working in fast food kind of restaurants, etc., low-level and low-paid jobs. This approach works very individual in a very individualised way and really looks at kind of what are the what, what are the client's preferences and choices about returning back to work, not only the type of job but also kind of the environment they want to work in and the location, because people have all kinds of wants um, ranging from 
only willing to travel two bus rides or we're down in southwest London and people will absolutely be adamant they'll say I'll go to work anywhere as long as I don't need to use the northern line people have all kinds of bits and pieces like we we all do because we're working with employers in an individual way we're talking about the skills and abilities of the individual we're not going out and asking employers would they recruit somebody with a mental health problem. We know there is a stigma and discrimination and I think what we're trying to do is actually offer solutions to our local employers in relation to kind of their unmet needs in relation to recruitment. So you are working with the kind of skills and abilities of the individual and yes they have a health condition which may require some adjustments in the workplace but there's also a support package put in place for the employer so that they can ring, they know who to contact if there are any problems. There is some interesting, uh, very recent research published, in fact, in the same uh, edition uh, as your paper in the bulletin um, in the British Journal of Psychiatry, looking at employment rates for people with schizophrenia, comparing them uh, for the UK compared to France and Germany, finding very low rates of employment in the UK, particularly compared to Germany. And one of the possible arguments about why that is is that the benefit system in the UK may discourage, in a way, people from uh, returning to work. Um, how, how is it that your implementation of this model seems to be bypassing that problem? Again, because it's an individualised approach, what we've been working, who, the group of people we've been working very closely with on this are welfare benefits advisors. So whenever somebody's looking to return back to work, where possible, we try and sort out for them to have an individual calculation, which takes takes time because um, it is quite complex but what the individual user ends up with is a kind of a very clear notion of actually at the end of the week or the end of the month what will they have in their hands to take away and people can then identify whether they will be better off by going to work worse off or exactly the same and it's really interesting um, I'd say the majority of people are tend to be better off by going back to work once they've had the individual calculation but even people who are sometimes worse off or on exactly the same income as they would be as if they stayed on benefits often decide to go back to work, um, which may seem quite perverse because you'll be having less income, but people often actually just want to return back to work and have the hope that they'll either be able to build up their hours or be able to kind of move into another job in a short time which will increase their earnings. Miles Rinaldi, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.